It's not in your order of worship, but as we turn our attention to the Word of God, I'm going to ask that we join together in prayer using hymn number 726. Thank you, Stephen. (laughs) Hymn number 726. be looking at Isaiah chapter 51, beginning with verse 17 and reading through the end of the chapter. Uh, Especially today, it will be helpful to be reminded again of the context of Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah's ministry, you might remember, began in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah's reign was about 40 years It had been a time that since the days of Solomon was the most glorious time economically, militarily, socially in Israel's history. It was a time of stability and flourishing. And then King Uzziah died. And as we all know, it threw um, the country into all manner of uncertainty and worry. What will happen now? And it was in that Context And in that confusion that Isaiah then went to the temple and he beheld the glory of the triune God, holy, holy, holy. And then he realized that the hope of Israel was not in a king. It was not in a stable economy. It was not in a strong military. But it was in the living and reigning king of glory. The one who created all things the one who called Israel to be his own because of his great love for the world. And so began the ministry of Isaiah. And the first half of Isaiah is framed at the beginning with his encounter with Ahaz and at the end with his encounter with Hezekiah. And the situation was the same. Both of them were facing huge military challenges, terrifying military challenges, for which they saw no solution. And Isaiah, naive prophet of God that he was, said, perhaps you should trust the Lord who is in fact the King of glory, the reigning one. Isaiah, don't bother me with such things. I have real troubles to deal with here. Do you not see that I am facing real military challenges? Go to the temple And let me do my work, and I will let you do your work. In the case of Hezekiah, later he said, Ha! What do I have to lose? I'm going to lose anyway. Might as well pray. 
even the prayer of such a mustard seed faith is responded to by the king of glory. He woke up the next morning and King Sennacherib and his thousands and thousands in the army were gone. Sennacherib died of an insurrection some weeks or perhaps months later. And that brings us then into the second half of Isaiah's ministry, which begins with these words in Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort, comfort my people. Because you have proven yourself to be unable to face the challenges in which you find yourselves, and you have proven yourself unwilling to trust me with it, yet I will take care of these things. That's the theme that is unfolding now in the whole entire second half of Isaiah. How will the King of glory, the triune God of holiness, accomplish this task of double comfort? It sounds great, but it doesn't always feel great. And so, allow me to read... Isaiah chapter 51, beginning with verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter. Wake yourself, wake yourself! Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons that she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, The Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Bow down, that we may pass over. And you have made your back, and you have made your back like the ground, and like the street for them to pass over. Is the word of God to us, his people. It's good news. It doesn't maybe appear to be good news on the surface, but I promise it is good news. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would indeed um, still our hearts, silence our minds. And so prime us to hear you speak. Feed us upon the wonder, the glory, the truth of your great love for us as your people in this world. And Father, rescue us from the lies that we have believed. For we pray it in Jesus. Are there circumstances that you find yourselves in now that are troubling you? 
Just think about them for a while. Relationships. Just think about it for a while. Perhaps you're facing new challenges at work. Perhaps um, so you have a new hire at work and you're thinking, oh my word, I am not going to be able to survive this new hire. Perhaps family situations, I don't know what it is. Think about those. You ever found yourself wondering in such situations, I thought God was faithful. I thought God was loving. I thought, I thought God was caring. What's he thinking? At Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, we are called to be disciples. We are called, that is, to be changed from something to something. That's what it means to be made a disciple. We are called to be changed from our natural, deceptive, and fatal desires and thoughts and words and deeds and changed to the desires, thoughts, and words and deeds of Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean to simply add Christ onto our life. It means for Christ to replace our life. It doesn't mean simply to add on Christ to our feelings. It means that the feelings of Christ replace our feelings. It means to be changed. This is what we were created for, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a real human being, to be someone who lives for the glory of God. But beyond that, this is what our world so desperately needs. This is what you need. This is what your neighbors, even in this congregation, need to happen in you. This is what our community needs to see happen in us. This is what our city needs to see happen in us. This is what our world needs to see happen in us. This change into the desires and the thoughts and the words and deeds of Christ. You see, the glory of God's great love is that he loves a world at war with itself and also with him. He so loves such a world that he sent his son to restore all things by redeeming for himself a special people who would be instruments in his hands of making his peace throughout his world. This is why it is so desperately important for us, for this congregation, for this community in this world, that this work happen in us.
In other words, if it's true that we are in Christ, then we in this room are both objects of and agents of the great triune labor of love on behalf of the world. And a necessary and unavoidable part of this great labor of love to make us his disciples is to first convince us of our need to be made his disciples. It's an uncomfortable process that involves the Lord thrusting us into all manner of relationships and all manner of circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes. An uncomfortable process to be sure, but a function of his steadfast love. We must be awakened. Sometimes we must be slapped upside the head to be snapped out of it, to be snapped out of our deceptive delusions and addictions in order to clearly see our condition and our circumstances. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, having heard me just say that, they're thinking, you're thinking, did he and Matt get together this week? No, we didn't. Did he and Scott get together this week? No, we didn't. The order of worship was put together about six weeks ago. Did he and Carl talk about what they were going to talk about today? No, we didn't. Because, brothers and sisters, it's not the word of Dan or Matt or Carl or Scott. It's the word of God and the working of his spirit that is at play here. It's very interesting, isn't it? This, in verse 17, is where the irony that was implicit last week becomes explicit. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up yourself! You remember, it's in response to verse 9, where the people, having heard the promise of the Lord's great, great work of salvation, the great work of righteousness, a salvation that will last to all generations, they turn around and say, if that's so, Lord, wake up, wake up and put on strength. Do now what you say you're going to do. And now, the Lord responds in verse 17, through the mouth, through the, the prophecy of Isaiah. And he says, no, I'm not the one that needs to wake up here. You're the ones that need to wake up. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Snap out of it. He's saying, stand up, O Jerusalem. Take stock. What will they see when they stand up and take stock? Verse 18. They will find that there is none to guide her. All her sons that she has born, there is none there. She is without help. Now the language there is a language that depends on the knowledge of 
of the ancient world, and that is this, that it is it, our hope and our help is in our children. There was no social security. There were no other governmental helps. Your security was in the provision of children. They took care of you. And now, when Jerusalem snaps out of it, she realizes that all the sons she has born, there are none there. They're gone. She has no help. She is helpless. Helpless today. But it's even worse. Verse 20 your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street. They're scattered around dead like antelope in a net. They have drunk fully of the wrath of the Lord. There's no help and there is no hope. No help for the present circumstances. No hope for tomorrow. It's gone. I lost my retirement. I lost my pension, lost my house, lost everything. It's gone. You'll notice that I skipped a verse, and some of you who have been around for a while know that while I was at first skeptical of this notion of chiasm, I have become much enamored with it because I find it everywhere. And here it is again. Verse 18 is all about the sons who are not there. Verse 20 is all about the sons who will not be there. Which leads us to a question right in the middle. Where's their comfort? Is, is, is there even possibility that I could be comforted given such circumstances? Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? I just, I just don't even know what to do anymore. I've, all my options are, are tried. I've spent them and they led nowhere. The best our world has to offer is, well, it is what it is. Who will comfort you? Who will console you? An alternative translation, if you have an ESV, you'll see a footnote there. An alternative translation for that second one is, how can I comfort you? So bad is it that we ask, can God even do anything with this? God himself, in this case, poses the question to us. What do you think? Am I able? You've endured the devastation and destruction of your own delusions. You've endured the famine and sword that comes from the sin and the brokenness of the world around you. What do you think? When all other options are gone, what do you think? Can I console you? They awakened themselves. Matt was speaking about the problem of addiction, and that's exactly what is going on here. Snap out of it. Wake up. Take stock. Look around. The language here in verse 17 is language of drunkenness from the hand of the Lord. The cup of wrath 
drink, drunk to the dregs, the cup of staggering. The language there is language of the DTs. Some of you in this room know what I'm talking about. The tremors that come in the process of detoxing from whether drugs or from alcohol. That's, that's now, that's what's going on here. Wake up, you who are in the midst of your DTs. Look around. Are you ready to name it for what it is? Your dreams and your delusions have betrayed you. Your drugs have not delivered. Your idols have left you abandoned. You remember that that was the language from back in chapter 50, where the Lord opens and says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors is it to, to whom I have sold you? Because they were accusing the Lord of having betrayed them. And he's saying here again, I haven't betrayed you. It's your dreams and your delusions that have left you and abandoned you at precisely the moment, at exactly the time that you needed them. Devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. So bad is it that we doubt there is even a possibility of comfort. It certainly doesn't seem reasonable to expect comfort. It certainly doesn't seem plausible to ex expect comfort. But our God is a God who lives beyond reason and plausibility. Because he is the one who calls out from out of nothing the world in which we live. But there's something strange going on here. <laughs> because wait a minute. We're here because of something the Lord has done. Verse 17. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Verse 21. Therefore hear this. Excuse me, excuse me. Verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of the street like antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of the Lord. What in the world? When we come to, lo and behold, we find out it's the Lord has been doing this all along? No. We find that, in fact, it's the Lord who has been walking with us through it all along carefully restraining the full consequences of our delusions so that we might know the emptiness of our delusions and the steadfastness of our God. It's not so much that he has created all these things, but he has calibrated and orchestrated and guided all these things so that we are trapped by our own delusions. Some of you have heard the poem by Francis Thompson, the, the poem uh, entitled The Hound of Heaven, which is a long poem, and it's worth reading at length out loud. Because it's the poem of a man running from the very one he thinks he desires to know, the living God. 
And he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he keeps hearing these footsteps after him, footsteps after him, footsteps after him. And then at the very end, he's caught. And he says, the very one that you have been running from is the very one who's been running after you. I have pursued you through all of your dreams, through all of your delusions, so that I would be there when you come up bankrupt. And so it is that we pray. This is the apologist's prayer, an evening prayer, excuse me, an apologist's evening prayer by C.S. Lewis. No doubt a prayer that he quite literally prayed often. From all my lame defeats and oh so much more, from all the victories that I seemed to score, from cleverness shot forth on thy behalf, at which while angels weep the audience laughs, from all my proofs of thy divinity, thou who wouldst give no sign, deliver me. Thoughts are but coins, let me not trust Let me not trust instead of thee their thin, worn image of thy head. From all my thoughts, even my thoughts of thee, O thou fair silence, fall and set me free. Lord of the narrow gate and the needle's eye, take from me all my trumpery, lest I die. You see, even those things that we believe and pursue and think of our, think to ourselves are good and wonderful things to the extent that we trust them and not their God. You see, we are pursuing dreams and delusions that will fail us. And so Spurgeon, commenting on Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, says this, It is the wonder of angels. It is the wonder of angels that the love of Jesus should be set upon poor, lost, guilty men. Each believer must, when filled with the sense of Jesus' love, be also overwhelmed with astonishment that such love should be lavished on an object so utterly unworthy of it. Knowing as we do our secret guiltiness, unfaithfulness, and black-heartedness, we are dissolved in grateful admiration of the matchless freeness and sovereignty of grace." You see, by the, stead, by the mighty works of our Father's steadfast love and amazing grace, our Father carefully and convincingly orchestrates our circumstances to silence us and still us so that we may know Him alone as our help in ages past and even in the present, as our comfort and as our hope for the future. We flee from the love and the wisdom of this God to our own detriment. We resist naming and owning the things that he says about ourselves to our own detriment. And so he brings us to this place of stillness and silence where we have no more words. We have no more strategies. And the stillness and the silence to which he brings us is called meekness. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's a necessary condition 
for standing and seeing and receiving and rightly rejoicing in the Lord's salvation. So that as he brings us to this place, we find that we are awakened not only to the reality of our own circumstances, but to the reality of our God. We are awakened to the reality of the one who pursues us, as we have just been saying, but also to the one who vindicates us. Verse 21, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And what will happen to it? I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them who pass over. Israel finds itself in this place because of very real evil done in the world. Very real oppression. They were victims of very real injustice. An injustice that our Lord used for their good, but an, un, an, an injustice nonetheless. Our God is so good that not only will He use the injustices that we endure to cultivate in us the spirit of a disciple, the spirit of meekness, but He will vindicate Himself and His people. And this is the glory of the God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 and that we hear described in Exodus chapter 34. Allow me to read that to you. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is what he said. Moses had asked the Lord to reveal to him his glory. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Here's this, catch this. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Part of the glory of the love of God is not merely that He works to affirm us, but He works to rescue us and then vindicate us. Because the love of our God is a just love. The justice of our God is a loving justice. That's part of His glory that boggles our mind. They go together. And he works in that way in order to, be, to bring us to such a place, to bring us to this place of meekness. Meekness. That's a New Testament word, Dan. Well, maybe, but it appears here too. Verse 21. In verse 17, he has addressed himself to. Jerusalem. And in verse 21, he renames them as the afflicted ones. The Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word for meekness. Those who have been meeked. Those who have been stilled and those who have been silenced. 
those who have been brought to a place to behold the glory of their Father's steadfast love. To be brought to, be brought to such a place, hear me, is essential. It's unavoidable to being made a disciple of this God. A faithful follower of the triune God. It's a painful process that is essential to God's mission. It's essential, it's essential for us and it's essential for our world. To be brought to such a place is what we call being meek. John Piper describes it this way. Meekness begins when we put our trust in God. Then because we trust Him, we commit our way to Him. We roll onto Him our anxieties, our frustrations, our plans, our relationships, our jobs, our health. Every circumstance, every relationship in which we find ourselves today... And then we wait patiently for the Lord because he has shown himself faithful. We trust his timing and his power and his grace to work things out in the best way for his glory and for our good. The result of trusting God and the rolling of our anxieties onto God and waiting patiently for him is that we don't give way to quick and fretful anger. But instead, we give place to wrath and hand our cause over to God and let him vindicate us if he chooses. The quietness and openness and vulnerability of meekness is very beautiful and very painful. It goes against all that we are by our sinful nature. It requires supernatural work. Writing at Patheos, a man by the name of Wellman writes this, one of the best definitions of meekness that I have ever read is that it is strength under control. The question is this, under whose control? Meekness does not mean weakness or being a doormat so that everyone can walk all over you. The definition of meekness is someone who is humble, teachable, and patient under suffering. The person who, is, who has meekness means that they have the absence of any feelings of being better than others. This also means that they are modest and lowly in spirit. Now, who embodies meekness most clearly and most fully. Jesus. Wait a minute. They have the absence of any feelings of being better than others? Yeah. We, for all manner and exclusively for illegitimate reasons, exalt ourselves above others all the time. Jesus, who alone had legitimate reasons to be exalted above everyone else, yet came in the form of a servant and gladly served, even to the point of death on the cross. 
That is meekness. It is meekness born of knowing the Father. It does not come to us naturally. It comes to us slowly and painfully. Some of you might recognize the language of meekness as coming from the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll notice, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, because the Lord has been orchestrating our circumstances to bring us to this moment of stillness and silence, that we may hunger and thirst for Him. And that's what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 51. For 40 years, the people kept saying to Isaiah, hey, we're good. We're the chosen ones. Come on. Give us a break. The steadfast love of the Lord needed to work in their circumstances to bring them to this place of stillness and silence that they may hunger and thirst for the Lord. When we have been meeked by the steadfast love of the Lord, we find that we hold a sober and clear assessment of ourselves and our circumstances. When we are captivated by a clear assessment of ourselves and our circumstances, we find that we have a clearer vision of the glory of our God. And when we have a clearer vision of the glory of our God, hungering and thirsting for the glory of our God in our lives, not only do we have a continued clear assessment of ourselves and our circumstances, but we have a continued clear assessment of those who are around us. So think, for example, of the Lord of meekness, Jesus Christ, before Pilate, who said to him, Do you not know who I am? I have power to snap my finger and kill you. And Jesus, meek man that he is because he knew the Father, where he came from and where he was going, said, O oh, Pilate, you have nothing that you were not given. Jesus had a very clear understanding of who Pilate was, much better understanding than Pilate himself had. Pilate, when he heard Jesus, he thought about Caesar, who had appointed Pilate to the position. But when Jesus said it, he was saying, you hold that position at the pleasure of my Father. This is his world. And he is the king of glory. Brothers and sisters, when we know that, it stills our souls, it silences our objections, and it gives us peace in the midst of storms. Because we know that in the details of our circumstances, our God reigns, and our God redeems, and our God makes all things new. Let's go to him in prayer.
So, Father, we pray that indeed you would still us and silence us and captivate us with the wonder of your steadfast love for us. by which you bring us to the end of our delusions to behold the glory of your great love. Oh, Father, grant us the courage to name our delusions, to own them, to turn from them, and to flee for help and for hope and for comfort into your presence, the presence of the triune God, the King of glory, indeed into the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, risen and reigning. We pray it in his name.